Hello and welcome to the Poma Podcast. This episode, Contrarianism. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. That's not that simple. Contrarianism as its sense of an identity-creating uh, function in our in our current society. That's what I want to kind of address this episode with. And contrarianism is usually an unintended um, philosophy that seems to be adopted, maybe people not as aware how much that concept is really getting rooted into personal identity and seeing this shift in, in how people communicate and, and receive and convey information. I felt there was some value in offering uh, a talk on contrarianism and how um, it can be reframed in a way uh, to shift it back towards a, a an exploration of which ideas may have greater merit. So if you think about any issue or any particular cause in the for or against column, usually you have um, a rooted direction or a clear pathway which each side is supposed to be advocating. And trying to win over either a broader coalition of public support or the necessary agents with which to enact that, that policy or initiative forward in, in having it implemented in our society. So that test around the merit of the idea and its impact and the merit with the, the larger body that can make it happen. The contrarian shift seems to have been where in lieu of offering the alternative, um, especially in policy areas where the solutions are not obvious or the big problems. How do you solve um, global economic concerns in an afternoon? It's, it's pretty hard, right? So in lieu of countering a proposal or an initiative with another initiative or, or different way of looking, it became a focus of scoring um, oneself in a team structure for or against the one idea. So instead of having a um, discussion around which types of ideas better, the contrarian identity, and this is not tied to any particular side or function. Every Almost everybody does it. I do it. Um, like it's, it's a function within our human nature, which is another reason why it should be covered, because to a degree, uh, we do define our identities not only by our uh, social collectives, but what we're for and against, and the against part. What, when we define ourselves by our opposition to something else, you know, or our contrarian position to that thing. So, but the whole identity usually doesn't have as much contrarian function, um, overwhelm, the personal identity. So that, that's the shift that I've kind of been observing is that the contrarian piece is eating up a much larger piece of the, the presented identity of people and the social interaction and certainly within the public debate. So when um, any news cycle will happen and it, it's proposing um, the most recent thing that um, the local leader is putting up on offer, Usually the responses um, have not been 
oh, well, here's my better idea. You know, it's this is why you suck. And I'm just going to tear that down because I can gain power by just trying to fight and destroy ideas. Not, and, and the problem with that, I mean, there are, contrarianism is a useful tool. There's a reason we all have it. There are ideas in our society that we should, you know, globally start to recognize and go, well, you know what, maybe the kind of fascist autocracies that prevent, you know, human beings from having um, life and quality of life, we may want, want to more universally uh, have a contrarian view against that kind of stuff, you know. There are certain things you you want to have a contrarian view as being the solution. So I was saying it was a piece, always should be a piece, but not as broad as it seems to be shifting to, to be uh, in lieu of a counter-proposal. It's just a contrarian view of why that thing is going to break down or no, pure blockage. Even the criticisms don't tend to be um, in the vein of trying to identify a, uh, a fixable avenue or how the thing may be introduced as one thing, but quite often, and this is common in, in most legislative processes, uh, the introductory stage of legislation or laws uh, can quite often be very different um, down the road as whatever finally passes or is implemented because people may go, oh, well, you know, when you read it this way, it's going to involve, you know, having to do something monumental that the, the, the target group isn't able to accomplish. So when that's the case, you uh, have to kind of look at just not going there. When I'm talking in a contrarian philosophy, eating up more of people's identity is that there's a, a kind of badge that can be sort of sewn on the emotional jacket and that people can find a, a sense of greater self-worth in being um, in opposition and in direct opposition. The challenge of a contrarian philosophy, though, is that it isn't necessarily forward moving. It is meant to be a stoppage and a blockage, right? It is, um, it is to, or, or even complete reversal in, in some cases, you know, where, where the contrarian view has then further won out the day. And then the public expectation with a contrarian government is, okay, we'll just you know, burn down the house of the last guy. And that kind of, you know, contrarianism doesn't get good solutions for governance. And so when we have contrarianism eating into the political sphere, because, you know, it's a part of our nature and there's going to be some, it can be, it's easy. Like just being against something is it's emotional, it's quick, it's uh, and it it can fire up and it can also energize people. It uh, stoke it can stoke up fear. It can raise money. That's why you know usually, um, you would say, and I'm, when I say usually, I'm just saying like the last couple of hundred years in which we've had uh, a constituency that has to be lobbied. Um, 
you'd have to present something as, well, these are the ways in which I'm going to undertake to solve the problems that we and you have, and, or this is the direction I think our, our country can be going, or our, our, our city or town, or whichever body. And you'd have a, a dueling pathway. They're still on paper that kind of an existence. There's usually some kind of playbook or something scored somewhere, but most, um, certainly 21st century, but even the latter 20th century politics was diverging away from uh, going hard out with it. This is, these are the pathways and the big picture view. This is how you can, we're going to try to get there. And this is why it needs to be done. Um, it, the carving out of a contrarian viewpoint um, really narrows the scope of everything because then it forces um, the realm of the conversation into solely a support or oppose uh, more, yeah, a rather emotional or, or a craven approach to it. And by building in identity principles to that uh, contrarian position, it's also like in order to be loyal to your existing group, you must take a contrarian position on, you know, Project X because Project X was introduced by the other people. And well, if it's the other people, then obviously it's a bad idea. That's very new. The obviously the other guy's idea is wrong is not generally been the design of democratic government. The idea of democratic government is that there are going to be different political philosophies and ideas to path, move forward, and the public will then decide which they find most convincing and appealing. The facts and the evidence will usually end up demonstrating which philosophies work over time and under which circumstances. And, you know, we're, it's not perfect, obviously, far from it, but the tools exist and the design exists to be implemented much better than we're doing because we've shifted our political realms into this contrarian philosophy and put contrarianism um, as such a large part of our identity and a, a larger part of the political identity. So by single issuing things, you have it's easier to understand. It's easier to fire people up in an age of social media. You can create, you know, quippy hashtags or, you know, quick snippets of pictures that can go up and it's very fast, easy to distribute and people can have a chuckle or they can get all, all enraged and that priming, you know, um, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're trying to think back of and please don't humanity be too insulted by going this direction. But if you're training a dog, right, and you keep using contrarian methods, you're going to end up with an incredibly high-strung dog. They're going to be incredibly difficult to manage. They're not going to be able to understand if their, rule, if their role is to be the forward protecting predator and attacking everything that it perceives as a danger around you, or to be the quiet, domesticated assistant and man's best friend. It, it, it'll be, you know, that's where you, that's why people don't understand how to manage their dogs is the failure to just get that one basic 
idea of the damage of a contrarian um, pattern can be for the dog. It, it doesn't understand that kind of paradox, and you're just setting it up to be incredibly high-strung and not able to predict what way you're going to be going, because everything you do just ramps it up, because it's just a hard blocking. It's not, let's solve the problem. And a contrarian view doesn't require anybody to have an idea of their own. That's the other advantage to it, is you don't actually have to have a position on anything. All you need to do is decide you don't like the other guys. You know, that's very easy emotionally and mentally. It doesn't cause a lot of baggage. And spending that energy in opposition can feel like action. It will feel like accomplishment. And that's also so it gets to hit those reward centers and you get the dopamine payoff when those other people fail and the ideas go down. But the root problem that the idea was meant to talk about remains. So the contrarian view doesn't take us forward. What we need to get back is to oppositional, right? Oppositional work proposes another apple. There's an opposition in government that proposes a different narrative. That's the objective of the opposition, is it's meant to have another narrative or remain consistent within the political philosophy or the narrative of that political philosophy in the case of multi-parties and whatever. But that offering that narrative is the key to having uh, a viable system of governance and opposition in a democratic model. By taking contrarian views in our politics and how we're framing political debate, we don't have to explore issues very deeply and we don't have to look at root cause. Because contrarianism is also usually targeted towards symptomatic outcomes from problems. So it's the, you know, um, tax everyone to high hilt, reduce all of the taxes. You know, there's only those kind of incredible extremes, not a more consistent, you know, why not have a multi-party commission where you all sit down and decide, okay, you know what, there's going to be taxes as the cost of doing business in the modern world. We've all decided there's some benefit to like roads, hospitals, police, and national defense. So let's just figure out a reasonable level and just bloody well stick to that for a little while unless there's a major shift or disaster or something that necessitates a, a complete rejigging of the system. But establish a semi-fair model that you know, fits with the design or the intents of uh, the nation and, and move forward with that with a stabilization principle so that you can get at root issues and actually kind of solve things. But that kind of cooperation is no longer expected because the, um, the role of opposition has shifted from a counter narrative or an alternative narrative to merely being in direct bring down the other person can't agree with them can't work with them right and it's really not healthy for us it's successful when you're trying to raise money and get like if you consider the engagement score of your activist or your target 
base, then this contrarian view, it's, it has great return on investment, like the engagement score, the ability to raise money, the ability to drive voters to the polls, all of those things go up using contrarian views. The problem is that at the end of the day, after getting elected, the contrarianism is no longer required. And even contrarian to their own philosophy, you wait idly by for there to be, to be something to be against rather than um, taking a solid view of, well, now that I'm in government, this is how I intend to solve the problem that we were all talking about. So uh, they can get by politically and survive on the idea of, well, I didn't do the thing that the other guy was going to do. So therefore, um, I'm doing fine, even though I do nothing because I didn't do the other thing. And it's just that your role is being abdicated and the responsibility is being abdicated by the ruling class. And it's not surprising that these ruling classes are willing to look towards large commercial actors, large uh, individuals uh, of social stature, or those who can drive a lot of uh, attention or have resources, um, or just will flailingly switch the winds on the ideas of what might satisfy the electorate more. It, it's not healthy for us overall to be going this way. So the tools to help with getting out of that contrarian view as a function of identity is, is just the teensiest bit of self-awareness of how much of your time is spent being just indirect, that thing must go down. And then understand how significant, it may seem very important, either in that moment or inside of you know, our identity. And, and it could be like tightly held. And I'm not suggesting that any particular view needs to be targeted. But if we were to say, for absurdity's purposes, that um, a new law was going to say that um, in order to address the um, incredibly challenging faces things that we're facing with our uh, environmental future, that all furniture must be constructed only from um, jettisoned banana skins. And that will reduce both production and it will require, you know, all things that are constructed to be significantly more durable and longer lasting because it, if there's a, you know, you create a resource shortage, right? Therefore, you inspire everybody to create longer lasting things. We even say there was some actual logic behind the idea of such thing, something so absurd. The idea of a contrarian view on that point is going to isolate all conversation to banana production. It won't even go and it won't bother to it, it, The contrarian views will be like, we could never produce that many bananas or, well, that would unduly advantage all the, you know, that's just a backwater subsidy to all of the um, agribusinesses related to banana and it's uh, corporate welfare. So the contrarian view is just targeting the idea for 
how it is in its failing, but without saying, well, it's kind of absurd when we have other um, textiles and another range of uh, renewable resources aside from bananas that perhaps it would be a little foolish to just restrict it. But maybe the core intent of only having the production of furniture um, be from renewable resources and require that everything is constructed to be sturdy enough to last a certain amount of time before it needs to be replaced may actually have an impact on the blah blah blah. Right? It, it's not a, hey, your idea is dumb, but let's go with still trying to solve the problem in a different way. You know, um, there are times when you're gonna, I mean, legislation that absurd probably wouldn't go into committee edit and have people turn out something that would be positive because you just, it's just easier to score something fresh than to start debating the, the, the efficacy of banana husks as the universal um, building material for all furniture going forward. But the, the way we operate in it. So if I was to take on a badge of being, well, you know, like I'm pro banana farmer. So this thing sounds like it's perfectly awesome. So I'm going to be the, the supporting and the initiating camp. In fact, that's part of where the legislation came from, right? The banana lobby will say, uh, it was like, hey, we have a great way for our survival. We're experiencing hard times. How about we get some laws in our favor? And that does happen, right? I mean, if you have the time and the resources to have people who sit around and go, well, hey, you know what? Um, how could we put forth laws or lobby in order to make the nation work in our best interest, large entities have those resources. Wealthy individuals have those resources. People working four jobs to support their families do not have the time or resources. Right? That, that, that's why the largest body of the electorate is unengaged in the process of making the thing happen at the political level because we're already too busy doing other things. It makes its and you solving these things generally requires you know a fair amount of exploration and like you can make some pretty big mistakes but generally if you take a reasonable approach to things and you consider a couple of things and then hire a six-year-old to go tell you why your idea is stupid and then fix those holes you can usually provide some fairly quality decision making for almost any problem and the disappearance of that debate, the disappearance of that engagement, um, it's having an effect. And when the scale of the problems are so big, and I'll, I'll talk more in other episodes uh, about creativity deficits, um, but we have to find our way to identify that we may be taking too much identity in our contrarian position to certain things and go, okay, well, even if, and it doesn't necessarily mean you need to switch to the other side of the position. You can still agree that a, a position is wrong, but you need to follow that up with, and then what is the thing that will still address the core issue that is behind why the other um, 
why the other people are, are proposing things or why this is an issue in the first place. You know? um, and it works if people try by doing that. I mean, take the five W's approach, you know, that old like who, what, when, where, why thing. Uh, a little just a little bit of honest questioning and go like, okay, where did this come from? Who's sponsoring it? Why are they sponsoring it? When's it supposed to happen? Right? <coughs> Excuse me. These are the things that are important to just look into. And even though there's a W missing, it's fine. You know, it's okay. We can find why it's important to us if we just 30 seconds you know 30 40 seconds i'm not saying you have to dedicate your life to trying to solve a new thing but if we just spend 30 seconds going you know what i may be against this thing but what is what i'm against trying to solve or what do they think it's trying to solve just making that one step to see what they're trying to solve by doing it, it may actually open a door to go, wait, no, I actually think the better solution for solving that is X, Y, Z instead, right? Um, that, that failure to offer a counter narrative and uh, the, not have, what would you call, a rational debate on the policy issues, you know, lower taxes, higher taxes. But do we talk about, you know, the distribution of the spending models, how it's allocated, who's accountable to it? it it's deep, boring stuff that doesn't really work for quick media. It doesn't really work for gathering attention. It doesn't scare anybody. It doesn't, you know, get the base energized to say things like, uh, one of, for an example, one thing that could have a huge impact on health outcomes is if at hospitals, this is this is just an example from an Ontario model here where I live, but if hospitals were restructured in a way that the act can allow the ambulance. So the hospital would have a duty nurse whose job it is, is to check in non-critical patients that are coming in from an ambulance. Because the thing is, the way health responsibility is structured is, once you're the person responsible for somebody, you're not allowed to just vacate the responsibility until it's, you know, triaged into the next institution. Once you're actually dropping them off at the hospital, they're in the hospital's care, but because there's a shortage of staffing in many of the hospitals, that fulfillment for the transition doesn't happen until the care responsibilities are able to be burdened. So you basically have people who should be out rescuing people and providing services, babysitting somebody who might have a broken thumb. And I mean, it's a systems design thing, it's good. I mean, you want to have the, the principle should not be the paramedics are just allowed to abandon people wherever they want the second they arrive in a hospital. No, you still want to have the nurse and the hospital check them in. But 
if something happens, like if I have my broken thumb and I ended up arriving by ambulance for some stupid reason, then I may very well, even if something is to decline or there was an underlying thing, it's not the paramedics who end up responding inside the hospital. They'll alert the hospital staff that the patient has moved towards critical. But that's just that just ups the queue for the intake when people crash out. It's not that they, I mean, obviously they'll do what they can on the scene, but the train, it's meant to be like, just kind of, uh, hey, you know, this person in your hallway is now having a heart attack where they once just had a, a, a broken bone. Uh, so if you think about the problem is in a contrarian-based political environment, what's going to happen is in smaller hospitals and in hospitals that do not have the kind of throughput to their emergency facilities, the idea of paying to have somebody on standby all the time at a single reception place to be a charge nurse for the intake, it would be cost prohibitive for those hospitals to have it. So they don't want, right? So there has to be a, if you're looking at spending dollars, it may not appear to be an efficient use of resources at all times. But when you consider the lost costs of having to both society of having undeployed people and the cost of paying people to just sit around when there's people who are not in a health danger, who are, I mean, if you're in a health danger, being already in a hospital is a pretty convenient place to have, uh, you know, any complications arise. Not that you want them, but I mean, once you're in the hospital, you know, there's, there's some real, there's some real logic to suggesting the ambulance people are no longer required. And there are, I mean, there are other jurisdictional models that have this kind of a system where it's like, okay, check in, you're at the hospital, thank you, you know, what's the condition of the person you're unloading? There might be like a few minutes or whatever delay as, as the, the nurse uh, or nurses, depending on the scale of the operation, deal with that kind uh, of an intake process, but it's not, okay, you're sitting around parked and waiting for a long period of time until such time as a doctor is freed up to actually do the evaluation. It's like, well, no. Um, that may be kind of challenging. So when you have, you know, I mean, that's a very narrow, specific example and a, a very jurisdictional piece. But by illustrating the, the proposal of, okay, we mandate the nurse. So um, maybe the views go around this idea of hiring at least one nurse in every hospital that has ambulance intake ER, right? Anything that uh, that justifiably has that kind of um, service it would be, say, just there has to be a 24-hour, right? So if there is only an upside or downside to the iron, everything gets reduced to every hospital had to, has to hire three nurses. That's what some that's what some jerk wants to do for our problem. And, uh, you know, the, the hospital in wherever says, oh my gosh, we totally can't afford to do that. And maybe one of them are together. Maybe the entire association decides to be supportive one way or the other. In theory, the nurses 
uh, association would probably be happy for more members, but may also raise significant objections for being the party which now is saddled with medical liability in case of, you know, like we don't know, maybe there's things the paramedics aren't saying and the person could be, like, they, you could be hiding or masking or pretending. It's like, you never know where people are going to go. So that's the thing. Immediately, right? I just did a whole thing in, what, 45 seconds, a minute and a half? A whole bunch of groups tearing at this thing. It, this is dead in the water, right? You've got cost implications. You've got uh, major associations, which could have huge reservations about how this would influence uh, people's responsibilities under the act. You, so, And then you've got the general public who may be going, okay, this is good, bad, uh, maybe this is. But the real, the whole point that caused this thing to be raised of we have a critical problem of ambulance availability because they're babysitting non-critical patients. Right? That's the problem that was trying to be solved. And it gets obscured in the, a contrarian attack on positional views. So you just have the one idea, and that's the only idea that becomes the debate. You know, Is climate change happening? Yes or no? Well, maybe. It doesn't matter if it's happening or not. The reality of the circumstances is we have measurable and discernible dangers that we have to prepare our living environments for. Those dangers are able to be a little bit suggested to us. And every time we try to model this stuff out, it is always more severe in reality than we ever thought it was going to be happening. So, you know, I don't really care whether people are contrarian or um, in 100% behind an idea um, without thinking about it ever. And so with that contrarian is, is the, you know, that the, the, loyal, the loyal support for an idea because my party, you know, supported it. Hence, going back to the banana idea, and if somebody who had been, you know, a staunch uh, opposition, in staunch opposition of banana subsidies their entire political career, but now that their party has taken this all furniture must be made out of banana, um, waste is now the political philosophy of the day. So in order to have my identity stay tied, I'm now pro-banana. You know, it, that's that's the weird badge and identity nature from contrarians. So 45 seconds or a minute of the who, what, when, where, why's, hows, all of that around why do I, why is that important to me? You know, and, and why do I identify with an opposite, just a contrarian view of no, I'm not offering encounter. So that's the thing. If that blocking no is there, or this thing has to go down, find a way to try to go, but what were they still trying? Maybe I still have an idea for the problem they were trying to solve. Because there are, absolutely, there's a reason we have the capacity for that contrarian view. And to even be, you know, in um, in opposition with ourselves and in paradox uh, across our sense of, uh, of various different viewpoints and that a position that people will hold uh, very strongly in one sense of their identity is in, in direct opposition to another position that they will hold within their identity. And yet they will, like, be blissfully unaware and will advocate equally as strong whenever it needs, but just by isolation and by that singular isolation and taking that kind of uh, approach to things, it, it causes the harm. So um, 
that's the that's the observation and that's the talk that the, that the trend um, is moving us away from solutions and um, and that the value of uh, of contrarian operations is uh, is is useful but it should be limited to a fairly um, smaller segment of more severe or or dangerous concepts that do actually need um, a direct defeat um, without offering a countervailing um, you know it's a it's a challenge it's worth it um, and you know we we can we can do this and again this one is not limited to any particular side we all do it and I've even done it several times during the course of this podcast um, just for good measure so um, I thank you for listening to the Palma podcast if you are wanting to throw a little love our way uh, you can always go to gofundme.com better policies for a better world and uh, we'd be very happy to get anything or share with your friends and uh, let the world know we will talk to you again